You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you are receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We're in Galatians 4. We'll begin in verse 8, and we're going to take it all the way to verse 20. And uh, my, my personal confession before I read is this. Uh, there are some days where, uh, some sermon moments, sermon prepping moments, where I feel like I'm banging my head against the wall. Uh, that was this week. <laughs> uh, but it was also an opportunity to just submit to the Holy Spirit and ask for help, which was a good thing as well. So my, my prayer this morning is that uh, the words on this page, right, and these pages, and God would use uh, for your good and for your benefit and for the honor and glory of his name. And my prayer is pretty simple. And that's been my prayer throughout this week as I've been striving to prepare this message. But we have God's word and it, it instructs us. So let's read from Galatians 4, starting in verse 8. And remember, Paul's building an argument here. He's on. So that's why we have this word formally. So he's transitioning from a previous thought. Formally, formally, excuse me, when you did not know God, he says to the Galatians, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose, slave you, whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I, have, I may have labored over you in vain. Verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become an enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, but I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do we untangle this? <laughs> right? We're going to do our best. 
I've thought about this sermon in relational terms. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. And, and this question came to mind when I thought about this particular passage in relational terms. Here's the question. How far would you go to plead with a friend who's making a horrible decision? Right? I mean a life-altering decision. What would you say? What would you do? You know, growing up, I made, I made a lot of bad decisions. Um, looking back, I would have given anything for a friend like to tell me the truth, to be like, hey, Sean, uh, these ideas that you're believing are leading you in the wrong direction. These choices you are making are not good for you. Now that, now that I'm older, um, I realize good friends can speak hard truths with their friends and do so with a tremendous amount of grace, love, and compassion. When, when Paul says to the Galatians in verse 12, I entreat you, or as another translation says, and I think this is much more helpful, I beg of you, says I beg of you, we are hearing Paul plea with the churches throughout the Galatian region. He pleads with them because they have been wandering from the truth. And so Paul is going to speak the truth to his friends. Throughout this letter, Paul makes one appeal after another, trying to get the Galatians to see the errors in their waywardness. In Galatians 1, just as a quick reminder, in Galatians 1 and into chapter 2, Paul appeals to the Galatians by sharing his conversion, how he was saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's like, guys, do you remember what God did in me? Now, do you remember what God has done in you? And then in chapter 3, Paul appeals to the Galatians by pointing out their experience in the Holy Spirit. He said, there's nothing the Galatians can do to receive the Holy Spirit other than through faith. You can't work your way to that. Also in Galatians 3, Paul appeals through biblical history and theology, which is why we spent so much time talking about Abraham, right? Paul also illustrates the gospel of free grace by using examples just from like everyday life. And now in chapter 4, we read that Paul appeals to the Galatians on the basis of his relationship with them. Paul is a friend. Hopefully we all have these friends. He's a friend who's trying to speak sense into his other friends. Um, the late John Stott, um, a great pastor and theologian, he has this fine commentary in Galatians. I've, I've found it helpful as I've been going through this book. He says this, we have been listening to Paul the Apostle, the, the great, mighty Apostle Paul. We got Paul the theologian, like Paul who wrote Romans. Paul the defender of faith, the great apologist. But now, we are hearing Paul the man, Paul the pastor, Paul the passionate lover of souls. And I would also add, we're hearing Paul, the friend. The way Paul the pastor is going to appeal to his friends is by putting all of his uh, relational poker chips into the middle of the table. He's going all in. On the basis of his relationship with them, Paul reminds them of what they were before Christ. 
Paul reminds them of what God had done to know them, and Paul warns them of where they are now heading, which is away from the gospel. Paul is concerned about their trajectory, because any trajectory away from the gospel is a trajectory away from Jesus. He's like, guys, we got to snap out of this. Let's be honest. Good friends, you know a good friend when they can tell you the hard truths. Paul was a good friend to these Galatians. Now, the way Paul goes about building his relational argument is by contrasting gospel faith and gospel ministry with worldly faith and worldly ministry. For example, our, our lives, our everyday lives, are full of contrasts. Uh, black versus white, daytime versus nighttime. Aspects of men and women can be contrasted. Uh, these type of contrasts, uh, one is not better than the other. Um, you do not have nighttime without daytime. They're just different. But there's also contrasts that exist with intention with one another. Uh, Chicago Cubs versus St. Louis Cardinals. Again, more, more Cubs reference, it's summertime. Uh, their intention with one another, regular coffee versus decaf coffee. Decaf is a swear word in my house. Republican versus Democrat. Skinny jeans versus jeans, which are normal. <laughs> and then there are contrasts in this world where one side is clearly right and the other is clearly wrong. Murder is wrong. Valuing life is right. The path of love is right. The path of hate is wrong. In this last category of contrast, we see the Bible explaining to us what is the right side of our faith and what is the wrong, wrong side. Paul shows us several ideas and examples that contrast that bring contrast, that provide clarity to us. Here are the two broad categories I'm going to kind of lay on top of this passage to help us kind of mine through it. The first is this, verses 8 to 11, gospel faith versus worldly religion. And then the second is gospel ministry versus worldly ministry. First, God's word shows us the dangers of worldly religion and the importance of gospel faith. There is a danger when you entangle yourselves in the ideas of the world and submit yourself to thinking, in particular, that your justification is somehow accomplished through your works. That's the, one of the main arguments Paul has been making throughout Galatians. This particular text this morning forces us to ask two questions. One, have I been justified through faith in Jesus Christ? And then two, which is more pertinent for today's sermon, if the answer is yes, have I been wandering from the truth of the gospel? Have I been wandering? My dad, my dad's a hippie. You just got to know that on the outset because everything I say just helps explain it. He, he had like all these bumper stickers on his door that went into his art room. Just bizarre sayings. Like when I grow up, I'm like, I don't even know what that means. And one of them was this, the one who wanders is not always lost. Maybe you've seen that like on a t-shirt. The one who wanders is not always lost. To which I say, the one who wanders away from Jesus is lost. As we, as we answer these questions, it, it is going to be helpful for us to see that the Galatians are not much different than churches in the 21st century. 
Yes, we're separated by time, but the problems tend to be the same. Ecclesiastes 1.9, there's nothing new under the sun. The tricks and lies of the devil transcend time, and they're used over and over again. In Galatians 4.3, Paul raises his concern about the Galatian church drifting back to old ways of thinking. Paul restates his concern in verse 9, which we're looking at today. He's like, guys, you know the gospel, so why are you going back to believing and living in a way contrary to the gospel? I think Paul is challenging his friends because of his deep love for them. To clarify, the reason why I think Paul is writing to his friends, who are not apostatizing, I don't think, but are being deceived by false teachers. I think they're dear friends who love the Lord, but who are wandering because of what we read in verses 8 and 9. He says, formerly, remember what you were when you did not know God. And then in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God. It is as if Paul and his friends are in the same house and in the same room. And then all of a sudden his friends begin to go into different rooms. And Paul is calling them back into the living room. Come back over here. This is what I think is going on in verses 8 to 11, which is the focus of Paul's plea. The churches throughout Galatia were primary Greek. I've said that a couple times throughout this sermon series. Which also means they were Gentiles, and that word has popped up a few times throughout our study. Before they were saved, these Greeks were worshiping their own gods. They had their own religious traditions. They had their own understanding of what it means to be in good standing with their gods. This is why Paul uses the Greek idea of elementary principles of the world in verse 9. What we also know for sure is that the Greeks had no concept of being saved by grace. This idea that there is nothing a person needs to do to be made right before God would have been completely foreign for the Greeks, just like it would be foreign for any follower of any other world religion in our day. Grace is a unique concept to Christianity. And Paul comes to Galatia and says, Ah, I want to talk about the gospel of free grace. And the Greeks were like, I've never heard of this before. And then by the power of the gospel, many were saved, churches were created, they were living in freedom and from the enslavement of their former Greek gods, but here is what eventually happened. In time, the Galatians began to go back to works righteousness, a work righteousness way of thinking and living. They were forgetting the freedom they had in Christ. But instead of going back to the Greek gods, they were believing a lie with a touch of Christianity and Judaism. Verse 10 is about the Galatians not obeying their Greek traditions, but the Jewish calendar. They began to obey days, months, seasons, and years. What the Galatians believed before Christ and what they were beginning to believe at the time Paul wrote to them had the same underlying issue. You have to do works to be justified and saved. It would be like placing in front of you two presents with different wrapping paper, right? Different wrapping paper, but on the inside of each present, you find the same contents, On the outside, they look different, but on the inside, it's the same deal. 
The contents being, you need to do something to be saved. And the Galatians were drifting back to old ways, but with different wrapping paper kind of on the outside. So I think it's good to pause for a moment and provide some contemporary application. Try to apply the warning Paul gives to the Galatians and to Redemption Hill Church. How do we keep ourselves from drifting back to the elementary principles of the world? How do you keep yourself from drifting back to what God saved you out of? Each person who is a disciple of Jesus Christ can ask this question because let's let's be honest with yourselves. We're capable of drifting. We're capable of drifting away from God and right back to, these are the words that Paul uses, these weak and worthless ideas of the world. The weak and worthless things of your former life. Your former life being before the time God utterly transformed you by the power of the gospel. So how do you keep yourself from drifting? Here's, Here's the first answer. We have to acknowledge we're capable of drifting. Just admit it. Like, I'm capable of that. Second, Paul says, remember who first knew you, which is, I think, a helpful answer. Paul gives part of the answer in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, and then all of a sudden it seems like he's going to qualify this, actually. Or rather, to be known by God as if God knew you first. Don't forget that. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles or elements of the world whose slaves you once want to be once more? Excuse me. So do you hear what Paul is saying in verse 9? It is not just that all the... They all of a sudden knew God, but God knew them first. The unmerited grace of the gospel met them, and it was going to keep them until the end. So how do you prevent yourself from drifting? Remember God knew you first. As a matter of fact, God knew you before Genesis 1.1. Ever think about that? God knew you before the world was created. Just go read Psalm 139. First Corinthians 8.3 says, If anyone loves God, it is because you were first known by God. The Galatians, like us, were really good at turning things in on themselves. Right? No, I did this. I'm, I'm making myself right before God. Paul reminds them again, God has done the justifying work. God saves and sets a person free from enslavement. God first knew them. God first knew you, Christian. So I found this helpful, and I'll submit it to you. Pause for a moment and reflect on the moment or series of moments when you realized God was breaking in on your life. Do you have that kind of moment in your life? Remember the liberation from sin. Remember the forgiveness secured by the atoning death of Jesus on the cross. Remember 
how you were an enemy with God and now you're his friend. Remember what God has done. I say this to myself and I say it to you. Do not turn your salvation in on yourself by going back to worthless idols, to the elementary principles of the world. We've got to knock it off. And we've got to look up to God. Um, by grace, God drew you to himself and knew you first. God is the one who came to you and said, you're mine. And he says, come and enter into my family. We talk a lot about family and family trees. Come and enter into my family and receive all the hope and joy that I have, that I have for you. Even if a person who is with an unregenerate heart went looking for God, he would wander for a lifetime. Because God is the one who makes himself known to a cold, dead heart. So Why? Why would you ever consider going back to believing in the lies and living the lies after experiencing the grace of God? Why? Why would we do that? Galatians, why would you do that? God has more for you. I've often thought to myself, why does Paul give so many warnings throughout his epistles? It's kind of what he's doing this morning, right? And it's not just Galatians. Uh, just like what we're reading. Why all the warnings? After all, Paul also says, and I'm paraphrasing, once a person is saved by God, God keeps that person until the end. So, so why all the warnings? How are these two thoughts reconciled, right? More bluntly on the, on the thoughts, how do we reconcile the warning not to drift and the assurance of faith, which is also in our text? Paul makes it clear. Formerly, you were like that, but now you have been made known by God. Um, in my personal study in the book of Galatians, Timothy Keller has been a great help for me. His commentary is short, winsome, and accessible. He says, the great and central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakable his heart is set on us. When God justifies a sinner, he also empowers him or her to live in a manner worthy of Christ. However, because of remaining sin, we're called to demonstrate our saving faith that has been given to us by God. And throughout our Christian journey, we do need to be warned. We, we do need correction. We need reminders. Because the path that leads to the gate of salvation is narrow, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. It is not a hopeless path, but it is a path that requires us to heed warnings. Without warnings and corrections, we will wander aimlessly. My kids, right? They need guidance, correction, warnings. If, they do not, if I do not give them guidance, corrections, and warnings, they will wander aimlessly. They would be free to believe in whatever lies that the world gives them. Therefore, we need to cling to Christ and encourage others to cling to Christ. Our faith does keep us until the end, but until the end comes, so either Jesus takes us home or Jesus comes back, until the end comes, we heed the guidance, the warnings, and corrections from God's word and, and I'll say, from brothers and sisters in this church. 
we want to make sure we do not fall into the Galatian air that anything other than justification by faith comes from anywhere other than God. The contrast which continues to be played out in verses 12 to 20 is that our assurance of faith is founded upon being being made known by God and we're not to retreat back but now we see how worldly faith in the Galatian churches was impacting the ministerial foundation Paul initially laid. So here is the second contrast in our passage. There are ways to do ministry and there are ways to not do ministry. Part of Paul's frustration is that he had labored in his ministry to the Galatians and wondered, have I ministered to you for no reason? Was it in vain? Verse 11. He faithfully preached the gospel to the Galatians and did so when he was sick. Verse 13. And he continued to preach the truth of the gospel to the Galatians from afar and he was wondering if he somehow had become their enemy. Verse 16. In contrast to Paul's ministry, there were teachers who were trying to get church members in Galatia to follow their leadership and their false gospel. The English, the English Standard Version of the Bible does not capture this contrast as well as the Christian Standard Bible. And in verse 17, it says, they court you, these false teachers, they court you eagerly, but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. They want to exclude Paul because by excluding Paul, they will also exclude the gospel of free grace. Honestly, you want to change theology in the church? You get rid of the pastor. Don't like what he's saying. He needs to go. Don't like Reformed theology. Let's get rid of him. That's what was going on in Galatia. This sounds like ungodly church politics to me. Now, Paul did not care if the Galatian churches revered him as some mighty apostle. That's not what Paul's going at. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, it does not matter if you follow Peter, Paul, Apollos, Paul is concerned about them following Christ. Paul is concerned about the souls of his friends in these churches because they were being led away from Christ. Paul does not care about internal church politics. He cares about the souls of his friends. To bolster his appeal that the Galatians were being led astray, Paul gives three thoughts that seem to be touching a nerve. Uh, Here's three thoughts. His relationship to the Galatians was being compromised. Uh, Number two, he he talks to us about the importance of truth to the Galatians. And then he also talks to them about what it means to become like Christ. So I want to show you how he expresses these thoughts throughout verses 12 to 20. The relationship between Paul and the Galatians was, was not supposed to be fickle. Paul says, I became like you and you like me, verse 12. Paul evangelized the Galatians and threw aside his Jewish identity to become like the Galatian Greek, the Greek Galatians. He won their respect by entering into the, in their world, and, and in turn, the Galatians became like Paul to the degree that Paul was representing Christ. Paul didn't become like the, the Galatians to the point where he was in sin. He became 
became like the Galatians to lead them out of sin. This reminds me of the time Sharice and I went on a missions trip to Romania. On this trip, like any other missions trip, we, we had to lay down our American ways to a certain degree. In a sense, we laid it down so that we could become Romanians, right? You're not going to, you got to get Romanian currency, for example, if you want to buy stuff. This was especially seen on the last day of our trip when our host invited us over for dinner. Last day of the trip, host says, hey, come, I'm going to treat you. And we're thinking like, this is going to be a meal. This is great. And there's only four of us on this trip. And so we gather around the table and then this giant fish gets put in the middle of the table. And I'm thinking to myself, that thing's going to go in the oven. And then I realized it's already been cooked. And then I'm thinking, is that thing still alive? But out of respect, we ate the fish. We valued the relationship with our host and wanted to respect our host. We became Romanian by eating the Romanian food. Likewise, Paul ate with the Greeks. You know, as it were, he went to the local cafes with the Greeks, learned the language. He did everything to build a strong relationship while also telling them about Jesus. Here's how intense Paul thought the relationship was between he and the Galatians. He says, just, I say picture this, but it's so graphic. (laughs) For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. I mean, he's obviously making an, he's making an overstatement here, but he's trying to make a point. That's how close we have become. And so Paul says in verse 20, he's perplexed by the actions of the Galatians because their relationship seemed so sincere. In contrast, the false teachers were trying to tear these churches away from Paul and from the one true gospel. Paul makes that statement right out of the gate in Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7. So what's the application here? We see the problem and the deceit, but how do we apply what seems to be frustrating Paul? I think the answer is that we need to realize that the right relationships do matter. Um, Being a member in a church with a gospel preaching pastor matters. I always tell people, you know, people come and they say, you know, they don't want to stay here, they felt called somewhere else. I say, that's great, that's great. Here's the one thing I ask you. Go to a pastor, go to a church with a pastor who's going to faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what matters. Build relationships in that church. Going to a church for your preferences or because a pastor is going to tickle your ears with nice stories and tell you what you want to hear is a problem. Surely Paul did not tickle the ears of the Galatians by telling them nice things when they needed to hear truth. The Galatians were so comfortable with what the false teachers were saying because it, why? It appealed to their former sensibilities. It appealed to how they once thought a person was justified before God. And so they believed the lie. And the lie began to push the Galatians away from truth and away from their friend Paul. In this church, we do center our relationships around the free grace of the gospel. We lay down our preferences for the sake of truth, and we will encourage other people with the truth 
in this church. In verse 16, Paul asks the question, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Is that where we're at? It's a rhetorical question, which indicate, indicates Paul is not accusing the Galatians of being enemies, but is wondering if the relational tension has reached the stage where they consider Paul an enemy. It's as, it's as, it's as if Paul is kind of like wondering aloud. Is this what you're thinking? Paul's rhetorical question does raise the point that truth matters and lies are, be t- are to be discarded. Lies can divide good friends. Uh, go back to verses 13 and 14. Paul says, you knew it was because of a bodily ailment. I take this to be a sickness. Think like malaria or something. That I preached the gospel to you first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me. How? As an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, here is the context of Paul's words in verse 13 and 14. Greeks considered sickness, disability, and disease to be signs of divine displeasure or like demonic influence. If I were to have a debilitating disease in, in first century Greek culture, I would, have been, I would not have been given the time of day. People just kind of pass by me. Forget you. And if I lived on the streets of a first century Greek town, I would have been spat upon. People would have spit directly on me. He's demonic. Yet, the Galatians received Paul despite the sickness. They received Paul as one of their own. Yet something happened after Paul left town. Lies were being preached. Lies began to influence Paul's friends. So the lesson here is lies can be destructive. Lies can turn best friends into enemies. Lies can create discord in the church. Lies can appease the conscience when the conscience has been convicted by sin. Lies are dangerous. And we see what lies were doing in Galatia. And if this is the case, which I think it was, and can still be the case in churches, what's the remedy? What's the remedy to all the lies? Paul uses more imagery to explain his desire and the remedy to combat lies. We've already had this imagery of like gouging out eyes, right? I'm not going to ask anyone to do that here. No gouging out of eyes. Paul's desire to see the Galatians grow in Christ is expressed as a mother who has given birth to a child. Full disclosure, I've never given birth. And there was a time when Sharice, during Sharice's labor when I passed out. So I have a hard time connecting with this particular imagery. Now that we got that out of the way, Paul's desire is for the Galatians to grow in their relationship with Christ. Literally, Paul says, I am in anguish and pain because I want Christ formed in you, verse 19. If there is an end game for Paul, it is this idea that Christ grows in the Galatians. God wants to see Christ grow in all of us. As your pastor, that's my desire. 
been around me long enough, you're going to get this question. How's your soul doing? How's your soul doing? Why do I ask that question? I want to hear what Christ is doing in you. And I want to talk more about what Christ continues to do in you. Day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. As Christ grows, the lies are pushed out. As Christ grows, relationships can find healing and they're strengthened. As Christ grows, assurance of faith is felt more deeply. As Christ grows, God is glorified. I said earlier, Paul put all of his relational poker chips into the middle of the table. He was cashing in. He did so because he loved his friends like Christ. He did it because he didn't want to see his friends live in a way contrary to their faith. He threw all of his chips in the middle because he wanted Jesus to grow in them and be glorified in their lives. Again, Paul wasn't concerned about what do they think of me. He was concerned about their relationship with their Savior.